So we are continuing in our sermon series um, on creation. Uh, last week, to introduce this topic, we looked at the, the creation narratives in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we saw that creation isn't something that you and I stand outside of. Only God stands outside of creation. We are a part of creation. I love the, um, the psalm that Pastor David read in the beginning. And when, when you hear things like, let all of creation sing to the Lord, often we think of, like, just us, right? We don't, we don't think of literally all of creation. Like, it's either very human-centric or just, you know, we're weird. Or we don't think of ourselves as a part of it at all. And we are. We are God's creation, And so because of that, creation care, caring for the created order, is not something that you and I get to opt out of or opt into. It's not something that you get to decide that you're interested in or decide that you're not interested in. It is a part of our call. It is a part of our witness. It is a way that we glorify God. It is, in fact, the very first thing we were called to do. It is the reason we were created, to steward God's creation. So if the goal last week was um, to get us to begin to rethink our orientation towards um, environmentalism or creation care, I still need to find it. I don't like either of those terms, but I haven't found a better one. So, but if the goal was to rethink that, um, then this week, the goal is to get us to rethink our orientation to creation itself in general. The title of my sermon this morning is In Him All Things Were Made. That's a lame title, but I am terrible with titles, so um, hopefully you'll see why I picked that as we go on. (laughs) I have two texts for you this morning. The first comes from the book of Colossians. I'm going to read chapters 1, verses 15 through 23, and then the second is from the book of Leviticus, and I'll be reading um, from chapter 25, verses 18 to 24. So I will, again, read these to you. You don't have to read along with me, but I do invite you to stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Um, If you are new to your Bible, Colossians is one of Paul's letters. It's towards the back. It's in between 1 Thessalonians and Philippians, not in that order. And Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. So it is between Exodus and Numbers, before Numbers. So beginning with verse 15 in Colossians chapter 1, it reads, The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, 
and do not move from the hope that held out in the gospel. If you continue in your faith, um, excuse me, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now turning to Leviticus chapter 25 and beginning with verse 18, it reads, Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. This is the word of God. Amen. So you can have a seat. So this morning, um, I have two main points that we're going to use these scriptures to flesh out. The first is that creation was made by God for his good pleasure. And the second is that to view creation as anything other than this, to view it as a commodity, is to reject God's truth and his faithfulness towards us. So let's get into it. First point, creation was made by God for his good pleasure. So theologians have spent considerable time um, theorizing about the origins of the Colossians passage. There's one theory that these verses that Paul recites, this poem about Christ, came from um, an old hymn that would have been familiar to the church at that time, but that Paul takes that hymn and then alters it. So, so the one problem with that, um, it's an easy problem. If you've ever been in church and singing your, one of your favorite worship songs and then someone changes something up, how do you feel? Right? You don't like it. If you're like me, it throws you, right? So it's not likely that Paul would do this. These, the, the, the letters that he wrote, he didn't envision that one day theologians would sit down and write great commentaries on them, right? They were intended to be read and to be sung and to be interacted by congregations, by the people of God. And so it's not likely that he would have decided to alter something that would have been so familiar to them. Another theory, and the one that resonates most with me, is that rather than pulling from some pre-existing text and changing it, Paul here is putting together his own song of praise to God, drawing on his deep knowledge of what we now call the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is writing a poem about our Christ. Specifically, the poem, the, the words that he speaks about Jesus Christ and creation seem to draw directly from his understanding of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in fact, much of the language that Paul uses to talk about Christ's involvement in creation is a play on words, um, the word that was translated in the beginning in that passage, Bereshit. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but y'all wouldn't have known it if I didn't tell you. More specifically, it's a play on the preposition, uh, bet, that's at the beginning of that. And that preposition means in, by, and for. Genesis 1, 
1 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Bereshit by Elohim. Paul tells us in Colossians that in him, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created in him, through him, and for him. Paul also plays on the various meanings of that word that is translated in the beginning, which are some total, head, and first fruits. And we see each one of these usages in this passage. Christ is the first fruits. He is the head. In him is the sum total of all creation. Christ, in whom all things were created. For him. And this is very much in line with the witness of Scripture, the idea that God created the heavens and the earth and that he created them for his good pleasure, for his delight. It oozes through the Psalms. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. The Lord makes the clouds of his chariots, and he rides on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, the flame of fire his servant, Psalm 104. Psalm 147 tells us that God determines the numbers of the stars, and he knows each one by name. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. Creation by God, through Christ, for his own good pleasure. All of creation, all of creation, that includes us, was created by God and for God. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The King James Version, which I love, says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Colossians makes it clear that we, like the rest of creation, are in Christ. And so his plan of redemption is not just for us. It is for all of creation. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it is his. You and I are sustained by the created world, by the natural world, and that is by design. It is God's intent. It was God's intent from the beginning that all of his creation would be unified, that we would nurture each other. As we take from the land, we also take care of the land. But the witness of Scripture is that creation was not made for us. The high point of Genesis was not day six. It was day seven. The world was not made for our good pleasure. It was not made for us to do with as we please. All of creation was made in Christ for God's good pleasure. Often, our orientation to the natural world is one, three, three ways. Either we see it as something to war against, and the Lord knows I've been guilty of that every winter. I'm warring against the natural world, Jesus. 
We see it as something to war against, something that opposes us, a force that we must conquer, right? Or we see it as something to pillage, something to use up in as much as we please for our own good pleasure, The other way that we see the natural world, and this is equally problematic, um, is as as having in itself some kind of divinity. So I want to make sure that I clarify right now, as we are talking about creation and why it is important for us to care for ourselves and all of the created world, only God is God, amen? God is not in the tree. He's not in the mountains. I I remember um, as a student at North Park, we, (laughs) we used to sing a lot of songs about like all of the worship songs in some way had some theme about nature. And I love nature. But at some point in time, I remember thinking, you got one more time to talk to me about a mountain and the trees and the wind, and I'm going to lose it. That's, that, that's a side note. Because <laughs> God is good, and he has revealed himself in creation, but he is not, creation is not God. Amen. You can, you can see God's majesty in the world. You can see God's God's goodness and his creativity, but you will not be able, don't leave this place thinking that you should go worship a tree or the ocean or anything like that. We all understand that, right? Okay. Creation is not something that we should war against. It's not something that we get to pillage for our own advantage, and it is not something that we worship. Creation, all of creation, including us, was created by God for God's good pleasure. And Our orientation towards his creation is as stewards. We are to take care of it. It is absolutely something that we, that will sustain us, but it is not something that we get to use up as we see fit. Even the way that we interact with the created world ought to be ordered by God. That's not a part of our life that we get to just do however we want to do. And yet, that is exactly how we see the world, as a commodity to consume. And so this brings me to my second point. To view creation as a commodity is to reject God's truth and his faithfulness towards us. And so to flesh this out, we're going to look at the Leviticus 25 passage. So in this uh, chapter... Prior to getting to where we are, this is where um, God lays out for Moses not only the the Sabbath year, but also the year of Jubilee. And so we have been talking a lot about Sabbath in this church, and we know every seventh year that was supposed to be a Sabbath unto God. And for that entire year, the people were told, you don't plant, you don't harvest, you rely on God, you trust God's faithfulness. Well, the year of Jubilee was even deeper than that, right? So now every seventh Sabbath— So every 49 years, this was a year um, that can best be described as a holy reset. Lands that had been sold were to be returned. This was a debts were canceled, right? This was a year where things were reset. The way that um, you can think of it is, is, is so... Let's say that I, you know, have my house and we love our house and maybe Carlos and I come across some some hard times and we need to sell our house. And so we sell it to Marquita. Well, during the year of Jubilee, she had to give it on back (laughs) to either us or to our descendants. And so the idea was that the land is not yours. It didn't belong to anyone. And that's why when we read in Genesis, excuse me, Leviticus 25 in our text for today, and God says, 
Anytime you sell land, you can't sell it permanently because it don't belong to you. The land is mine. This is a way that God provided for his people. It was a way that he made sure that not only were the children of God cared for, but that the land was cared for. Every seventh year, the land got a chance to rest, to breathe. Every 49 years, all of God's creation got a chance to rest, to breathe. In addition to discussing the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee, in this, trans, in this chapter, God lays out the guidelines for land transactions. So we understand market as being determined by, you know, the, the value of your property is whatever somebody is willing to pay for. You can charge whatever someone will pay for it. In God's economy, the value of your property was based on that jubilee year. So in that example that I just gave where I sold my property to Marquita and she's going to give it back at year 49. Well, if I sell it to her in year two, I can sell it for more because she's got more years to work that land, to harvest that land, to, to reap crops. If I sell it to her on year 48, the Bible said, don't you charge, be, be wise, don't be greedy. So I would have to sell it at a price that recognizes she had one year to use that land. Even land transactions, even the economy was set not by human greed, not by what we want to do, not by how much I think I could get for my good piece of land, but by God's economy, by this concept of jubilee. Everything gets to rest. The land gets to rest. It does not belong to you. It is not for you to do with as you please. This is my land. You are foreigners living on it. See, the year of Jubilee that happened every 49 years was a reset button. It was an opportunity for the people of God to be reminded that everything comes from God and belongs to God. That their orientation to that land was not as owners, but as stewards. The cycle of Sabbath and Jubilee was a constant reminder to God's people that God was their faithful provider, that the land belonged to him, and that their role was to be stewards. It was a reminder of who they were and who God was. So Pastor David has said um, on many occasions that one of the sins of our consumerist culture is that it causes us to see each other as commodities. We value one another based on what we can get from each other, what we can do. Your worth in this society is based on your your status, and your status is determined by, again, what people view as your contribution. It's why we ask folk when we first meet them, and what do you do? Right? It's a way of assessing how much value do you have. We think of our friendships and our relationships in terms of networks. We have whole events where we go to network, to connect with people. Not to connect with people around, you know, necessarily shared interests, but people who may advance us in some way. It's an When I say it like that, that probably sounds crazy to you, and yet this is a taken-for-granted way that we move through the earth. It's a way that we see each other. We commodify one another all the time. 
But the fact is that this tendency towards commodification is not simply extended to how we view each other. It's extended to how we view the whole of creation. The value that we place on the natural world is tied to what we can extract for our own pleasure. It's the reason why a diamond is more valuable than a pretty rock you might find outside on the street. What can you get? And so this is yet another reason why Sabbath is so important. Sabbath reminds us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That everything belongs to him. Sabbath reminds us that in Christ there is no lack. And he is able to provide for us completely. Sabbath invites us to trust a God that spoke eternal value and worth into all of creation when he stepped back and said, it is good. It invites us to remember that the high point of creation was not day six, but day seven, when God rested from all the good work he had done. When we treat each other, when we treat the created world as a commodity, it is a slap in God's face. It is, a, it is us saying, it is mine. It is us trying once again to be the gods that we were trying to be in the Garden of Eden. It is a way for us to say, we don't trust you, oh God. And so we will take from creation what we have decided we need. There's a quote um, that I came across in preparing this by a theologian by the name of Dr. Andrew Shepard. He writes a lot on the subject of creation care. And he says, the value of creation does not stem from the utilitarian value denoted to it by humanity, but stems from the fact that it has been lovingly created as a gift of love by, through, and for Christ. Creation has intrinsic value in and of itself. I was struck by this because... um, Because it sounds like something that we say here in this church all the time about one another. That our value doesn't come by what you do, by what you can contribute. That you are valuable, you are worthy because you are a child of God. Period. Your value stems from the fact that you have been lovingly created as a gift of love by, through, and for Christ. Our tendency to see each other and the created world as commodities, make no mistake, is rooted in sin. In both cases, it is a denial of who God is and a denial of who we are. And it is a denial that God is the loving, all-sustaining provider for all of his creation. So then the question is, what, what can we do? What Ought we, how ought we look at the world? We are a doing church, and so um, I think that messages like this can be uncomfortable, right? Because you can sit there and think, that sounds great. Okay, but then what? what is the, how does that look practically? I don't have any prescriptions, and um, I know next week we're going to talk more about what it means to live justly in relationship to creation. But one thing that I would like to leave you with today One orientation that I have come to feel we need to embrace when we think about ourselves and the created world is one of radical hospitality. Speaking of 
God's established rhythm of Sabbath and Jubilee, Sandra Richter, who's another theologian and activist, writes, in contrast to the consumer culture in which we live, Leviticus teaches us that it is not acceptable to take from the land everything you can. Rather, God's people are commanded to leave enough so that the land is able to replenish itself for future harvests and for future generations. Even though such methods would significantly cut into the farmer's short-term agricultural profits. Why? Because I am the Lord, says Yahweh. In other words, because this is Yahweh's land and Yahweh's produce, and Yahweh intends that his land be fruitful for the next generation. If we were to view ourselves and all of the created order, not as something to take as much as we need, but our job is to make sure that future generations get to experience God's creation in the way that we have experienced God's creation, rather than it being um, a political issue or something that, again, we can opt in or opt out of. This is a part of God's call to radical hospitality and generosity. Our job is to make sure that God's creation exists for all eternity, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. Another way to look at it is it is an act of worship to God. The Bible all throughout Old Testament and New Testament talks about creation worshiping and praising God, crying out to God. Let all of creation sing to the Lord. God is worthy of all worship and all praise. And so when you and I care for all of the created order, we ensure that there is more praise to go around to our God that is good. Rather than having to see creation as having divinity in and of itself, how would we feel? How would we act? How would we we respond? If when you walk down the street and you saw a tree, you experienced it as worshiping God, giving praise to God, God taking delight in it. Hospitality and worship. These are not words that we usually think of when it comes to creation. But I believe that the witness of scripture is that they ought to be words that we think of when it comes to creation. As stewards, we ensure that God's creation is cared for and thrives for all of eternity. As worshipers, we ensure that like us, even the trees and the seas get to cry out to our God and worship. As I said, next week we will talk about some specific ways that are either conscious and willful mistreatment of creation or are just ignorance of it have played out, the implications that it has for all of us. But I'll leave you with this. Too often you and I see ourselves as separate and apart from. But in the same way that we talk about in this congregation, especially that multiracial ministries and us learning how to love each other across the lines of race and class and gender, in the same way that we assert that that helps us to see God more clearly and it helps us to worship God more fully and that we are impacted by one another such that what happens to you ought to break my heart as well. In the same way that you and I are connected as the body of Christ All of creation is held together in Christ. And so our worship will be more full when we see ourselves not as outside of, but as a part of. 
Pastor David joked about the community garden. But I think your worship would be more full if you put your hands in dirt sometime and saw it as an act of worship to your God, tending to the land that he created. Our worship would be more full if we cared about what we put in the air and in the water, not just for our own sakes. Because, see, that's easy. I can care if it's going to mess up my water. I can care if it's going to mess up my lungs. But what if we saw pollution not just as something that would be harmful to me, but something that broke the heart of God? Our worship would be more full if we saw ourselves not as separate from, but apart of. In all things, Christ works together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In him, by him, and through him, all things were made. Nothing that has been made, either visible or invisible, either rulers or authority, nothing that has been made was made apart from him. So I hope you guys are continuing to pray. I pray that God is continuing to show and reveal to you. I have to say, um, the conversations that I had with a handful of folk, um, I said, I think, the word vegan one time last week, and I had four or five people tell me, you're not going to make me a vegan. I'm not trying. What? So, like, but I'll say this. I will say this. I think that that kind of reaction, and this doesn't mean be vegan once again, but that reaction, I think, is a, is a part of one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is showing us our connectedness. The reason your mind went to vegan, you're, the reason your mind goes to what you eat is because there's some level where we recognize that we're a part of. And so maybe what I put in my mouth affects all of me. That's, that's my theory. Lean into, um, pray about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in, uh, over the course of this week. Because I do think that it matters, not just to me because that's something I care about, but it matters for our walk. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to pray for our offering. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Thank you, Jesus. God, it is hard to... It is hard sometimes to... to fathom the depths of your love and your heart. It is hard enough for us to grapple with the depth of your love for us. So the idea that you love us, that you love all of your creation, is something that we can easily give mental assent to, but it's sometimes hard to to feel, to know, to believe in our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to see the ways that you are working in all things for the good of those who love you. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the ways that you are blessed by all of your creation. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the ways that we can more more deeply and sincerely and passionately worship you. Not just with each other, God, but with all of creation. Help us to see how we can join into the praise that is constantly being 
lifted to your name. You told us, God, that if we didn't praise you, the rocks would cry out. Help us to more deeply understand what that means. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love the world that you created. Help us, God, to repent for every time we have taken it for granted. And show us what it means to live upright, to walk uprightly before you as stewards of your creation. God, I pray in this week that you would, that you would help those of us who maybe feel very far off and disconnected from the created world. Help us to have moments where we can encounter you this week, where we can hear your praises sung by the wind that touches our face. God, I thank you for all of the ways that you minister to us. I thank you for all of the ways that you command praise and worship from your creation. And so, God, as we uh, turn our hearts to give, I ask that it would be a declaration of our unshakable trust in you as our provider and our sustainer. I thank you that you are always providing for your people through your people. You are always providing for your creation through your creation. And so as we give, let us do so radically and boldly asserting that in you there is no lack, that we fear nothing, certainly not scarcity. I pray, God, that we would give trusting you to multiply those gifts and use them to advance your kingdom for your purposes. God, I thank you for every single person who is here who desires to give but does not have it today. I pray, God, that you would provide for them. I pray that you would bless them and bless us all. And ultimately, Lord God, I ask that you would help us to see you more clearly and love you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.